Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, the latest on the war in the Ukraine. Dr. Gerald Horn joins us with his cutting-edge analysis of the war and its geopolitical implications. For our weekly Earth Watch, we speak with Dr. Gary Walkner from Save the Colorado. We will discuss the problems with hydroelectric dams and what actions environmentalists are taking. Also, you will hear our weekly Earth Minute. And April is National Poetry Month. And today we speak with poet Jasmine Elizabeth Smith on her book of poems, South Flight, which was inspired by Oklahoma's Black History. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Ukraine says its forces sank the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in a cruise missile attack in what would be a significant military strike. Russia says a fire aboard the ship was caused by an ammunition explosion and all sailors were evacuated. It made no mention of an attack. The loss or heavy damage to the ship would be a major military and symbolic defeat for Russia as its troops regroup for a renewed offensive in eastern Ukraine. Julia Chapman reports from Moscow where journalists are operating under censorship restrictions. Russian state news agencies quote defense officials saying that a fire broke out on the Moskva warship, causing ammunition to detonate. They report that the crew was completely evacuated and that reasons for the incident are being established. The Moskva is based in Sevastopol in Russian-annexed Crimea. At full capacity, it can hold more than 500 service personnel. Designed in the Soviet era, it is equipped with 16 Vulcan cruise missiles. The Moskva became famous in the early days of Russia's special operation in Ukraine when it cornered a small island. The Ukrainian soldiers guarding the island told the warship to go away using colorful expletives. Julia Chapman, Moscow. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he's sincerely thankful to the U.S. for the new round of $800 million in military aid. The U.S. aid includes additional helicopters and the first provision of artillery, also armored personnel carriers, armored Humvees, naval drone vessels, and gear and equipment used to protect soldiers in chemical, biological, nuclear, and radiological attacks. In his daily late-night address to the nation, Zelensky also said he was thankful for yesterday's visit by the presidents of Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. Russia claimed advances in the southern port city of Mariupol, where they've been battling the Ukrainians since the early days of the invasion, is some of the heaviest fighting of the war. The Russian Defense Ministry spokesman said more than 1,000 troops from Ukraine's Marine Brigade in Mariupol had surrendered. A Ukrainian official rejected the claim and said the battle over the strategic southern seaport is still underway. 
The family of a Congolese immigrant shot in the head by a Michigan police officer will speak out today. The Grand Rapids Police Department has released body cam video nine days after an officer fatally shot Patrick Leoya following a traffic stop. Hundreds have protested. Christina Honested reports. Patrick Leoya is a 26-year-old black man who an unnamed white officer shot point blank in the back of the head last week. The officer pulled over Leoya because his license plate didn't match the vehicle he was driving in. A chase and fight over a stun gun ensues. I'm stopping you. Do you have a license? What done? Do you have a driver's license? Do you speak English? Yes. Can I see your license? No, no. Stop. Stop. Put your hands right here. But then the officer's body camera footage turns off just minutes before the fatal shooting. In a statement, family attorney Benjamin Crump is calling for the officer to, quote, not only be terminated for excessive and fatal force, but be arrested and prosecuted for his violent, reckless, and unjustified killing of this black man during a misdemeanor traffic stop. Lilio was an immigrant from the Congo, Crump said, seeking a better life in the United States. I'm Christina Onestead. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says flooding in the Durban area has killed more than 250 people and is a catastrophe of enormous proportions. He said the disaster was due to climate change and that the world should no longer postpone the measures it needs to take to deal with the phenomenon. South Africans had to flee their homes as they were swept away, buildings collapsed, and roads were severely damaged. The Palestinian Health Ministry says Israeli troops shot and killed two more Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. According to one count, Israel has killed 23 Palestinians in recent weeks, intensifying Israeli raids in the occupied West Bank follow an outburst of politically motivated attacks carried out by Palestinians in Israel. Those attacks have killed 14 people in recent weeks. The renewed violence comes as Muslims mark the holy month of Ramadan. Jews are set to celebrate Passover, which begins on Friday. Tensions and clashes in the lead-up to Ramadan last year boiled over into an 11-day Gaza war. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to kick off today with an update on what is happening in the Ukraine. And then Dr. Gerald Horn will be joining us giving his cutting edge analysis. On Wednesday, the United States announced an additional $800 million military aid package to Ukraine. While the U.S. thus far has poured billions of dollars in military aid to the Ukraine, what makes this announcement different is that it includes equipment that the U.S. had not sent previously because they would be seen to escalate a U.S. conflict with Russia. But there we are. They include armored personnel carriers and helicopters, according to the Times of Israel. Meanwhile, Sweden and Finland have announced that they will make their decision in a few weeks about joining NATO. This is seen by Russia as an escalation, and Russia has said such a move would mean Russia would increase its its defense by increasing nuclear weapons in the border region. Sweden shares a three a 830 mile border with Russia. <clears throat> 
Russia has long claimed that NATO pushing up against its borders as a reason for its invasion of Ukraine. And they did so, they say, to press Ukraine into dropping its plans to drop NATO. The Ukraine has, since the war began, says it now has no plans to join NATO. CNBC is reporting that Russia has long asked for NATO to revert to its pre-1997 borders, but this has been rejected by both the United States and NATO. Since 1997, NATO has almost doubled its membership, including much of Central and Eastern Europe. This has been a grave concern of Russia, who see this broad expansion of NATO as a threat to Russian security. Additionally, media outlets are reporting that today uh, Russia's flagship based in the Black Sea has been seriously damaged and its crew evacuated, but there are conflicting stories as to the cause of the damage. The Ukraine says it hit the ship with two missiles. Russia says the damage was caused by a fire on board the ship that caused munitions to explode. Whatever the reason, the ship being damaged is bound to be a blow to Russia. The BBC is reporting that five Ukrainian cities are now under Russian control, including Luthansk, Donetsk, Mariupol, Kherson, and Crimea. There is just one city in the east of Ukraine that is not now under Russian control, according to a report in the Times of Israel. However, the Crimea, you might recall, was already integrated into Russia, Western forces say annexed by Russia, in 2014. Russia days ago announced that a thousand Ukrainian troops surrendered in Mariupol. Russia is now saying it has full control of that city. And Ukrainian President Zelensky is offering to trade a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician for Ukrainian troops in a prisoner exchange. Let us go to a clip now from CNN on that prisoner exchange proposal. Ukraine's cool. bracing for a major Russian offensive in the east, and President Volodymyr Zelensky is making an offer to Vladimir Putin for a prisoner swap. He's proposing to turn over a detained Putin ally pro-Russian uh, Ukrainian politician Viktor Medvedchuk in exchange for captured Ukrainian prisoners of war. CNN's Ed Lavandera is joining us live from Odessa. Ed, has the Kremlin responded to this trade offer and tell us about this man? Well, Viktor Medvedchuk is uh, someone who is a oligarch, a pro-Russian politician here in Ukraine. And it was believed to be that Medvedchuk would have been the person that Vladimir Putin would have put in charge of a puppet government here in Ukraine had Russian forces been able to take over the country in those initial days. Um, President Zelensky here in Ukraine says that Medvedchuk was, uh, was detained and, and arrested uh, late last night uh, in an operation by the uh, uh, security service here in Ukraine. 
And it's interesting, he was actually uh, detained before the invasion, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He was under house arrest, but after the invasion, he disappeared. So it has taken about a month and a half for uh, Ukrainian forces to find this oligarch and pro-Putin uh, ally. And now Zelensky is saying and offering uh, to the uh, the Russian government that we will trade uh, Medvedchuk for, uh, in the words of President Zelensky, <coughs> your guy for our boys and girls and, and who are now in Russian captivity. So we're waiting for response to uh, uh, of what uh, Putin is going to respond to that. There have been swaps of prisoners over the last few weeks. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. All righty. I would now like to welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, the Morse Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, including the award-winning The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He, his most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Dr. Horn, tomorrow's our weekly roundtable, and of course we hope to have you back for your continued updates and analysis now. But looking at the Ukraine on the geopolitical front, the Secretary General of NATO has said in a recent speech that NATO is deepening its partnerships in Asia because of what he described as an increased quote-unquote security challenge uh, from China. And some of the BRICS nations, India and South Africa, uh, who are part of the BRICS nations, along with Brazil, Russia, and China, who, by the way, BRICS make up 24% of the world's GDP, they've been skittish on the war uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Horn, just uh, starting out with you, <clears throat> you have made the point that the analysis, look, um, certainly on the part of, of mainstream media, but also in some of the alternative uh, media, haven't really gone deep enough in terms of the geopolitical reasons and implications uh, for this war. Given what the NATO Secretary General has said, um, your thoughts here? Well, certainly with regard to the alternative media, we've had a surplus of editorialists and a deficit of analysts. If we had more analysts, they would focus on what you just mentioned, which is that NATO has suggested that its remit is extending from the North Atlantic, which is embedded in its title, all the way to Asia. I've suggested from the inception of this conflict on February 24, 2022, that actually the ultimate target is the People's Republic of China. That is to say, the idea is to weaken China's major ally, which is Russia, as a way to more effectively encircle China. It's difficult to confront China frontally and directly because that would mean confronting Tesla and Microsoft and Apple and GM and Starbucks and KFC and a goodly number of the Fortune 500 corporations embedded in the United States of America. Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen also pointed in this direction just yesterday by suggesting that uh, there might be secondary sanctions imposed upon nations like China and presumably the other BRICS members as well, including South Africa and Brazil in particular, unless they went along with these primary sanctions against Russia. So 
it seems that we're hurtling towards the brink of catastrophe, and we need a peace movement that not only engages in editorial denunciations, but also calls for de-escalation and negotiation. That would ordinarily be the role of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres of Portugal, but as the presence of his homeland suggests, uh, he is perceived in Moscow as being overly pro-NATO and has basically uh, thrown himself out of the game. Uh, Therefore, it seems to me that what needs to happen is that the African Union needs to step up as a mediating force in this conflict between NATO and Russia, perhaps President Ramaphosa of South Africa needs to step up, because the rhetoric is becoming ever more heated. You may have noticed that uh, President Biden the other day suggested that uh, Russia is engaged in, quote, genocide, unquote, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, This is not just a colloquial term. It's a term with fraught meaning in terms of international law. If you go back to April 1994, you might note that during the height of the genocide in Rwanda, Secretary of State Albright, uh, Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor, and uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, and uh, the U.S. President as well, all studiously avoided using the G word genocide because when you invoke genocide, it's incumbent to intervene to stop the genocide. I hope that Mr. Biden is not priming the United States military to become militarily involved more than it is in Ukraine, but certainly dangerous and ominous signals are pointing in that direction. Uh, Speaking of which, the fate of the planet might be hanging on the slender thread that is agreement between lawyers in Washington and lawyers in Moscow. The lawyers at the State Department in Washington, they make the point that the dumping of a large arsenal of weapons into Ukraine does not make the United States nor NATO a co-combatant that would then allow Moscow to attack U.S. forces in Poland, Germany, for example, that are supplying uh, Ukraine. However, if Moscow lawyers do not take the same position, then they could say that the United States and NATO are co-combatants, which would then mean we're on the brink of World War III, which would mean and suggest that we're on the brink of the extinction of all humanity. Yeah, and, and Dr. Horn, I mean, to underscore your point, this announcement that was just made yesterday by the Biden administration, I mean, they are sending weapons to the Ukraine now that they had not sent previously because they knew full well that that would mean an escalation and that would lead the United States closer to a direct uh, conflict <clears throat> with Russia. And this business now of uh, Sweden and uh, Finland, Sweden, which shares a very long border uh, with Russia, talking about entering uh, NATO, yet another uh, provocation. And we, in terms of escalation, and we also have to see exactly what did happen with this ship, the flagship in the, the Russian flagship in the Black Sea, I think the name of it was uh, Moskva in the Black Sea, there are conflicting stories about exactly what happened there. So, Dr. Horn, it does seem as though 
things are moving in the direction of escalation and not de-escalation. And it, it also seems as though when there are attempts to open up humanitarian corridors or perhaps to make some progress uh, in negotiations, uh, something happens, some big attack or something happens that derails it. And one has to question who gains uh, from all of this. I, I wonder your, your thoughts on that. But uh, also, um, you know, you, you raise China and China, it is reported that there are now their huge offshore oil and gas uh, producing company, that they're withdrawing operations from uh, Britain, Canada, and the U.S. because they're concerned that these Chinese assets assets could be sanctioned by the West and that China is increasingly looking to grow its assets in Latin America, the Caribbean, and on the continent of Africa. Dr. Horn. Well, I think that that has been one of the foreseeable consequences of this conflict, which also raises the point why the peace movement should not be more critical of stateside entities, such as the State Department, the Pentagon, the CIA, think tanks like the Atlantic Council and the Brookings Institution, universities like Yale, which specialize in teaching courses in grand strategy. Because there is a fundamental and profound flaw in the logic of all of those aforementioned entities. They posit that Russia is aggressive, which is one of the reasons why you need NATO to encircle it. If their logic is correct and Russia is aggressive, then it should have been foreseeable that a conflict would emerge with all of these downstream consequences, such as China reorienting from the North Atlantic to the Global South, such as, for example, the Western European nations becoming in, reaching the position where they're going to boycott a Russian natural gas and then try to seek alternative uh, entities to supply natural gas, which then leads us to Algeria, which is not necessarily fond of Western Europe, not least its former colonial master in France. And so now Algeria is now playing hardball with regard to supplying natural gas to Spain and Italy, and in fact has Spain and Italy at each other's throats as they tend to compete for Algerian natural gas. And this is part of the turnabout that we see as a consequence of this conflict. Uh, that is to say, pulling capital out of the North Atlantic, reoriented towards the Global South, uh, leaders of the Global South like Algeria in the Catbird Sea, manipulating a Western European nation. This was all foreseeable, but somehow the think tanks and the CIA and the State Department and the Pentagon uh, did not necessarily foresee it. And in terms of the reshuffling of the international deck, you should not only focus justifiably upon this dangerous talk emanating from Helsinki and Stockholm about uh, joining NATO, which would be like the red flag to the bull, but also the credible accusations made in Pakistan that the dislodging of Prime Minister Imran Khan was because he was perceived in Washington as getting all too close and chummy to Moscow. Of course, there's been a long-term alliance between Pakistan and the People's Republic of China. And if Mr. Imran Khan, the former prime minister in Islamabad, is correct, then possibly you can expect 
of further attempts at regime change, along with secondary sanctions imposed upon nations in the global south who do not want to go along with this adventure uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, which obviously uh, speaks to this moment quite dangerously. And I should also make another point. I, I, I trust that you heard the remarks of Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization, who was very upset. Uh, he suggested that he does not quarrel with the attention to the hundreds of thousands of refugees flowing out of Ukraine into Europe, into Western Europe in particular, uh, but he's concerned that there seems to be a double standard. And in terms of that double standard, you might have seen how you had this stunt uh, pulled by the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who took refugees from the Texas-Mexico border and bussed them to Fox News studio in Washington, D.C., for a, a kind of news item and a photo op. Quite cruel. You see how Britain, which has opened its doors to Ukrainian refugees, is now devising a plot to send other refugees all the way to Rwanda to be processed. Now, this is a racist double standard, and what's even more remarkable is that we do not have people of color, at least the organizations, speaking more forcefully uh, with regard to this double standard, because obviously this will redound to our detriment, ultimately. And I should mention in that context the point that just the other day you saw President uh, Zelensky address the Grammys, which, of course, includes a number of prominent uh, black musicians being honored with the prominent singer John Legend uh, warbling afterwards uh, a ditty uh, in solidarity uh, with Ukraine. But many of us were wondering, well, why, is, why, why don't the Grammys uh, open their uh, uh, doors to having uh, Haitian refugees being uh, highlighted uh, during that uh, telecast. Now, of course, I'm not saying that, obviously, to be anti-immigrant uh, like Dr. Tedros. I do not quarrel necessarily with uh, this extending of uh, hospitality to Ukrainian refugees. The question is, why isn't that hospitality extended to refugees throughout the global south? Right. And um, two things connected to the issue of race, uh, Dr. Horn. Um, we are noting that the uh, police in Grand Rapids, Michigan, have now released videos that shows a white police officer shooting a 26-year-old black man. This ha all happened during a traffic stop, okay? And this man lost, uh, lost his uh, life, Patrick Lyo. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, there's that happening on the home front. And it's not, by the way, making headline news. You know, it's it's kind of, you know, it's making some news, but not certainly as it would have if a war wasn't going on. And uh, in terms of the double standard on the U.S., uh, Mexico border, there's now a special lane that has opened up to fast forward Ukraine uh, refugees that are coming in. And one has to wonder who are these refugees that Governor Abbott is then busing uh, to Washington, D.C.? I doubt very much they are uh, the refugees from Ukraine. Likely there are brown people, brown and black people from south of the border or from, from the continent. And also um, Ukraine and Asian students are are experiencing being beaten by Ukrainian security, pushed off buses
buses and trains and unfair detention at EU's, um, you know, borders, and that the EU's temporary protection directive will not apply to students who did not have permanent residency in the Ukraine before the war. So they have to apply for asylum at a national level uh, for protection. And then if they do manage to get into uh, Poland, we've heard stories of them being abused uh, by guards and, and police in Poland. So uh, certainly that underscores uh, your point about a, a double standard going on here. And um, uh, no, uh, a reason likely why so many countries of, of the global South are not you know, enthusiastically buying into the U.S. and Western approach to, you know, what is uh, happening in the Ukraine. I mean, just 300 people lost their lives in uh, South Africa due to flooding that's attributed the severity of it to, to global warming. So, you know, we know who's at the front lines here. Um, Dr. Horn, your your thoughts on all this, and and also finally, that on the financial front, the U.S. seems to be struggling to keep the U.S. dollar as leading the global reserve currency, right? As economies are looking at how to get around the U.S., um, you know, the U.S. imposed sanctions. Dr. Horn, your thoughts? Well, I, I think that that last point is absolutely critical. What I mean is that the ultimate significance of this conflict in Eastern Europe might be what's called de-dollarization. That is to say, the move away from the dollar as a major reserve currency used in bilateral trade. We already know about the fact that India is buying Russian oil on the cheap with the trade consummated in Indian rupees and Russian rubles. We have heard discussion about uh, Saudi oil being sold to China with the Chinese currency being used. In that context, that footnote, the rather uh, frightened letter sent to President Biden from leading members of Congress, including Congressman Adam Schiff of the Southland, Congressman Gregory Meeks, the head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, objecting to any warming of relations with Saudi Arabia at a time when reputedly and reportedly Mr. Biden is headed to Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, to beg for the Saudis to pump more oil so that the price of gasoline at the pump will go down so that the odds for a democratic comeback in the November elections might be improved. I should also mention in this context, to your point concerning lack of enthusiasm in the global south about sanctions against Russia, this is reflected in the 58 abstentions that took place just the other day with regard to the vote in the United Nations General Assembly on expelling Russia from the Human Rights Council with a disproportionate number of that 58, not to mention the dozens of no votes uh, coming from Africa in particular. And finally, I I should mention that there's been a lot of talk in the United States about uh, branding Putin and his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, as war criminals dragging them before the International Criminal Court, even though Washington is not a signatory to the International Criminal Criminal Court Charter, nor is Russia, even though past legislation has suggested that Washington, believe it or not, would consider uh, invading the Hague in the Netherlands, where the ICC is cited, if the ICC were so bold as to prosecute U.S. individuals. And, of course, the ICC 
has opened a file looking at the U.S. human rights depredations in Afghanistan, not to mention the depredations of U.S. ally Israel in the uh, occupied territory. So what's happening is that this crisis is accentuating a number of pre-existing contradictions. And once again, what we need are the peace forces to put on their collective analyst cap and thinking cap so that we can collectively come to some sort of understanding of what is the significance of this momentous event unfolding as we speak in Eastern Europe. We'll continue this discussion tomorrow, Dr. Horn, because it does seem to me anyway that if this war doesn't lead to World War III, it certainly seems to be a harbinger for solidifying a multipolar world. And Dr. Horn, we've been discussing this on um, our weekly roundtable for quite some time. So thank you so much, Dr. Horn. Your analysis are rare and not heard enough, either on mainstream or alternative media. So our Sojourner Truth listeners are very lucky to be able to have you uh, break this down for us. Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you. Thanks for joining thank us. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. We are going to take a short station break now and then coming up our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. Jazz month. April is jazz month. So we're sharing some jazz music with you today. This is Margaret Prescott, a little horse today, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And uh, we're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Oakland, California. We got a strong listening uh, audience there in Oakland, uh, California on SoundCloud. And in the United States, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Pakistan. In Pakistan. I also want, before we go on to our weekly Earth Minute, to just announce that today, uh, April 14th is the anniversary of the Bassa Slave Rebellion in my home uh, island of Barbados. Uh, so many years ago, um, Bassa and a woman lieutenant who worked alongside him, uh, Nanny Griggs, launched uh, a slave rebellion against the British. This, of course, followed uh, the, the, the Bassa Rebellion was 1816 in Barbados, following the great Haitian Revolution. And after the Haitian Revolution, there were slave revolts throughout the Caribbean region and uh, also in North America itself. So just want to give um, a, a, a mention there of today being the anniversary of the Bassa slave revolt in Barbados. We're now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute. On the heels of the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report, 
Organizers, including a thousand plus scientists, kicked off the world's largest ever scientist-led civil disobedience campaign. The latest report details the failure to significantly reduce fossil fuel emissions in an effort to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, a tipping point that has irreversible impacts on weather, ecosystems, and lives worldwide. According to Peter Kelmus, a U.S. climate scientist, the science clearly indicates that everything we hold dear is at risk, including even civilization itself and the wonderful, beautiful, cosmically precious life on this planet. Real climate action requires ending reliance on fossil fuels and reimagining business as usual through cooperation with grassroots and indigenous efforts to advance transformational system change. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. Alrighty, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. I would now like to go to our weekly Earth Watch and um, to first of all welcome our guest, Dr. Gary Wuchner, who is a global environmental activist, scientist, writer, specializing in river and water protection and climate change. Noted by publications as an echo rock star impacting the planet and a river hero, Gary is author of numerous magazine articles and newspaper columns, as well as the 2016 book, River Warrior, Fighting to Protect the World's Rivers. Gary founded and directs three river protection organizations the biggest of which, Save the Colorado, focuses on protecting the Colorado River. Save the Colorado is a partner in the effort to petition the EPA to include dams and reservoirs in the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting uh, program. Um, Gary, welcome. Thanks for having me on. We want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them both for our weekly Earth Minute as well as our weekly Earth Watch. Now, uh, Gary, um, you... Are, and your organization, you're making the claim that hydropower is not included in the required reporting on greenhouse gas, so that pollution from dams and reservoirs are omitted. Um, why is this a problem? And is a lot of people think of hydroelectric power as clean energy, is it, Gary? No, it is not clean energy, and it is a common misconception and that is the reason why uh, our group, along with 135 conservation organizations, are petitioning the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to add dams and reservoirs to their greenhouse gas reporting program. Um, there's a number of ways that greenhouse gases are emitted and caused uh, during uh, hydropower uh, functions. Um, oftentimes, when they build massive reservoirs, they have to do significant deforestation. Um, in addition, uh, uh, <clears throat> organic matter in the ecosystem flows down rivers and gets trapped uh, in reservoirs and decomposes underneath the water. And then also, in addition, uh, hydropower dams and other dams and reservoirs cause dewatering of rivers downstream, uh, which dries up wetlands and mangroves and also releases greenhouse gas emissions. Um, methane is one of the biggest problems uh, when organic matter decomposes underwater, which happens very often with hydropower projects and other dams and reservoirs. And so it's a significant uh, concern because methane is a uh, 
turbocharged greenhouse gas, you might say. Right. And, you know, the, you know, it's a very, very impressive uh, list of organizations, by the way, and I wanted you to, to share uh, some of those um, with us, some of the organizations that are supporting you and uh, also what you think the next steps are for you. Sure, we're doing this in uh, a coalition of 135 groups. Some some big ones like International Rivers, which is based in the Bay Area. Also, the company Patagonia and the organization Earth Justice, which is a environmental legal firm, also based there in uh, in California. And quite a few others too, including the Center for Biological Diversity, which is based in Tucson. Um, the next steps are that we have submitted the petition to the Environmental Protection Agency, and they have responded that they got the petition and are considering it, and so we're kind of in a bit of a waiting game to see what the EPA does. Uh, In addition, we are also considering moving petitions forward in various states, including potentially California, because California has laws about how greenhouse gas uh, emissions need to be reported. Uh, And as an example, um, Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, which provides a significant amount of electricity to all of Southern California, has been estimated to produce as many greenhouse gases as a coal-fired power plant. And so it's just an example of how hydropower is often greenwashed, and we need to get the regulatory agencies like the EPA on board with um, required that those emissions be accounted and reported in uh, federal as well as state-based programs. Right. And, you know, uh, Gary, in the uh, press release that you all put out, uh, the Biden administration um, has, it seems, addressed uh, methane uh, pollution, um, but yet for some reason this seems to have slipped through. Uh, any thoughts on, on, on why this happened? But is that, is that priority also making you a bit hopeful that your petition and the pressure that you're putting on will have an impact, will get a response from the administration? Yeah, we are optimistic. You know, the Biden administration has highlighted uh, methane as a greenhouse gas. In addition, some of the scientific studies that we cite in our were performed by EPA scientists. Also, further, the EPA itself right now is going through a lengthy process uh, of measuring greenhouse gases uh, at dams and reservoirs in various spots in the United States. And so they are well aware of the issue, and we're just trying to kind of prod them forward and get the agency and the federal government to act uh, with this petition so that the emissions by dams and reservoirs, including hydropower, can be counted and reported, and then eventually something can be done about it. Because in some places, it is very significant. As I mentioned, the estimates of the best science for Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, which again provides a vast amount of electricity to Southern California, suggests that it is the same uh, methane and greenhouse gas emissions portfolio as a coal-fired power plant. And this is, you know, not commonly known. And so uh, we're trying to bring it to the attention of not just the public and the decision makers, uh, but also the regulatory agencies so we can start to do something about it. Right. And uh, Gary, I I understand uh, your time is uh, limited, so uh, we'll have to let you go. We got your uh, note about that a little bit late. Um, But uh, Dr. Gary Walkner, please continue to keep us posted on this. But before you go, please let us know what website. Is there a website that people could get more information? 
Yeah, the best place to go to is Save the Colorado, savethecolorado.org. Our mission is to protect and restore the Colorado River from the source to the sea, which is one of the most dammed rivers on the planet. And of course, there's an extreme crisis right now due to drought and climate change. On that note, Dr. Gary Wookner, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on your show. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, in addition to it being Jazz Month in April, it's it's also uh, National Poetry Month, launched by the Academy of American Poets, according to their website, back in 1996. And the purpose of it is to just give us all a reminder that poets are really important in terms of our culture and that uh, poetry actually matters. But over the years, it is reported to now be the largest literary celebration in the world with tens of millions of readers, of students, of teachers, librarians, booksellers, families, and of course, uh, poets. Uh, So we usually do mark Uh, Poetry Month on Sojourner Truth, and we will again uh, today. I'd like to welcome to Sojourner Truth uh, Jasmine Elizabeth Smith. She is a poet from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and is a Cave Canem Fellow. Um, Jasmine's poetic work has been featured in Black Renaissance Noir, Poetry, the LA Review of Books, and World Literature Today, among other publications. She was a finalist for the 2020 National Poetry Series. Uh, Jasmine Elizabeth Smith is the poetry editor and a poetry program specialist for the Black Lights Art Collective and a co-host of the radio show, Baby Poet. She's an educator in South Seattle, where she resides. Uh, Jasmine Elizabeth Smith, welcome. Hi. Yes. How are you doing, Margaret? Thank you so much for having me here this morning. Sure. So, Jasmine, I have your book, uh, South Flight. I'm holding it in front of me right now. Just amazing. Congratulations, uh, first of all. Uh, But tell us a bit about the inspiration uh, for South Flight, uh, your book, because you say it takes inspiration from Oklahoma Black history. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I, you know, I always like to kind of contextualize the book, um, both within kind of my own personal history, um, and then also kind of the political reckonings um, of the state. So I grew up in Oklahoma, um, and a large part of this collection came from various kind of lacunas of history um, and erasures of history around um, black Oklahoma history. Um, And in particular, I have this pretty visceral memory of being in my Oklahoma history class and raising my hand when we were talking about the history of black Oklahoma and bringing to my teacher's attention, you know, and this is in 2006, what about Greenwood? What about uh, Black Wall Street. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Can we talk about the Tulsa Race Massacre? And immediately being silenced by uh, <laughs> uh, by my Oklahoma history teacher um, at Edmond Memorial High School. Um, and so I think a lot of this collection came from a desire of really wanting to combat a lot of the erasure around Black Oklahoma history, not just the Tulsa Race Massacre, but also looking 
as well, too, about the history of resilience and also sovereignty of various um, towns um, in Oklahoma. And an interesting fact about Oklahoma um, is when the state was founded um, and after uh, Juneteenth and the emancipation, uh, Juneteenth, um, in which slaves left Texas, um, more black settlements were founded in the state of Oklahoma. And these were all th- thriving, vibrant, uh, economically sovereign communities um, in which black people flourished, and they had these amazing townships. Um, and, of course, with the destruction of Greenwood, which was an economic epicenter, um, of course, gradually after that, um, you saw kind of the decline economically of these other townships. Um, but still to this day, there were more black towns in uh, the state of Oklahoma than anywhere else. Um, and so that really inspired me, um, you know, um, knowing for myself when I had been younger, if I had known not only this history of destruction, but in the same hand, this history of resilience um, in the state that I was growing up in um, and within my community's legacy as well, too. Um, and so this project really came from wanting to um, to kind of share that. Um, and then I think from a more kind of personal standpoint as well, too, um, I left Oklahoma in 2016. And so this collection also became a bit of a love letter, um, love letter and also indictment to the state of Oklahoma, which I had left um, as a black woman, um, and thinking a lot about what does it mean to stay in a community that you love, that is also suffering, and what does it mean equally to leave as well, too, um, to seek um, freedom elsewhere? So, yeah, that's a bit of the inspiration um, around the collection. That's that's great. Um, Jasmine, I do want to talk a little bit with you also about the work you're doing with, like, Black Ice Art a Black Lights Art Collective and, and just the, you know, what is happening. I mean, the kind of explosion um, we're hoping will continue of Black poets and Black women poets in particular. But I would be remiss. I'm going to kind of, sorry to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm wondering if you have your book in front of you. Is there anything you'd like to read for, for us today to get a taste? Yeah, Absolutely. I'm going to read um, Greenwood Ghosts Dress Their Sunday Best. Um, this is after Gwendolyn Brooks' Real, um, We Real Cool. Um, and so just to give a little bit of a context for this point that I'm about to read, um, pulling from the history and tradition of resistance from early black church grades, historian John Hope Franklin, who moved to Greenwood in the 1920s, described of the Sunday afternoons in which residents of his community would promenade the streets in their Sunday best. It was like a pantomime, people moving up and down. They were going in and out of restaurants, and they were just seen to be seen. They were dressed in their finest, and they looked beautiful to me. Um, and this is Greenwood Ghost, Dress Their Sunday Best. This is no parade for your pleasure. No one winds up brass band stand celebration. This no market we nice melons sample or haggle down our price. Aspirin, lady hand, leather of Louise half heels, biddle honey, salted seeds from Ferguson drugstore and Grier shoemaker. Up here, 
No one hunches their back, slows their eyes, pantomimes themselves a minstrel or maid. We don't give. We grand, stand our own street, headlining Tulsa Star's newspaper, attorney Spears, Sadler, and Chapel. We call up Lazarus from the dead, Blue Bonnet Gurney, and Frissel Hospital Basement. Just seen to be seen, we filled out, we bright enough, we gold and weed, we oil reserve, we keep no time, we brun shine, gospel, we holy spirits broken from the mouth and matchstick, Bethel Adventist church pews, past Abner and Hunter Barbershop, Carter Billards, Hardy's Furnished Rooms, Dixie Theater. You mistake our procession for ghosts, envious the figurative. You claim we isn't, so why do you stop and stare? Is our beauty so vain? It's a form of resistance. Phew. Wow. <laughs> that is a poet, Jasmine Elizabeth Smith, and a poem from her brand new book, uh, South Flight, inspired um, by Oklahoma uh, Black History. Thank you so much for sharing that, um, Jasmine. And I, I also, in, in the time that we, we have left, I wanted you to talk a little bit too about the work that you are doing with other poets and the um, the collective, the Black Lights Art uh, Collective, in particular, uh, Black uh, poets. Jasmine. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so I do feel that oftentimes I wear a number of hats um, outside of uh, teaching in Seattle. Um, I do work with a number of nonprofits, and probably one of those nonprofits that is the nearest and dearest um, is founded by Lily Jackson. Um, out of Southern California and in the Inland Empire. And this was really a project of hers to bring education um, and workshops and art advocacy for individuals um, from the Black diaspora that otherwise would not have had access to the institution or an MFA program. Um, and so a lot of that programming um, is bringing workshops such as Morgan Parker or Hanifa Durakid, um and having these amazing workshops um, that are free and open to the public where books are sent out, um, where individuals not only are learning from some of the most formative voices within black poetry um, and black writing across the board right now, um, but also having the chance to write and then share their work as well too um, in a very soft workshop setting um, as well too. Um, and so I have helped um, in terms of working as an editor for the zine and then also helping um, curate some of the poetry programming for this organization. Um, in, addition, um, in addition to that right now, I'm working as a guest editor for the About Place Journal um, by the Black Earth Institute, which is an ecological magazine. Um, and working as an associate editor, it's always a really, um, you know, I'm very passionate about really kind of expanding our definition of who is included within the canon of ecological literature and ecological poetry. Um, and so bringing visibility um, to BIPOC folks um, that are submitting their work um, and to black poets in particular that may have been erased from that work um, 
and ecological discussions, um, because often, right, there's this intersection of the political, um, but also the nature as well, too. Um, so that's been a really kind of tremendous experience um, as well, too. Right. And uh, just finally, finally here, we, we just have really just about uh, 30 seconds left or so for young people who are listening, who aspire uh, to be a poet. Any quick thoughts you can give to them, uh, Jasmine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, You know, I have to kind of um, quote Toni Morrison. If there is a book um, that you can't find <laughs> uh, and that you want to read, write it. Um, you know, and don't, um, I, you know, sometimes the industry, um, there's a lot of hiccups and there, sometimes there are closed doors, but be persistent, be resilient. Um, be your biggest fan when you are writing and believe in the work that you're putting out and that it is necessary to put into the world. Your story is important. Right. Believe in your work. I, I, I just love that. Um, well, this is uh, our guest, Jasmine Elizabeth Smith. Uh, her book, South Flight, University of Georgia Press. Um, quickly, uh, Jasmine, is there any place you would, for people who want to get your book, I have it, I love it, I highly recommend it. Any particular uh, venue you think they should go to get it or just go to your local bookstore and have them order it for you, <laughs> Jasmine? Yeah, I really love supporting local bookstores. So I would say put an order in um, in your local bookstore, um, black-owned bookstore um, in your area um, and have them order it for you. Um, or you can go directly to the University of Georgia Press um, and you can order that there um, or Elliott Bay Bookstore in Seattle. We're out of time, Jasmine. We are going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so Jas much, Margaret. What a pleasure. Yeah. I'd like to thank all of today's guests and today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our engineer, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Please stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back tomorrow for our weekly roundtable, our regular lineup of panelists will be there. You won't want to miss that. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you'll please remember to stay safe.